I spent a year of my life in pretty early recovery saying I don't know to every single question that was asked. So it's a great exercise because I think we can so easily get caught in our knowness, our knowingness. And when you say I don't know, there's an opening. Leading with questions instead of leading with answers is a powerful practice. Now, I have such deep respect for leaders who can admit to not knowing in a culture that worships the certainty of quick fixes and those witty comebacks, right? Sure, in times of crisis, steady, knowing leadership is both calming and needed. But the pressure to have all the answers all the time limits creativity and possibility. The linear model of leading through telling people what to do shuts down inclusive perspectives and fresh ideas. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Having the capacity to ask questions instead of offering all the answers is what brings out the best in you and those around you. It sure is easier said than done to say, I don't know, what do you think? I'm not clear, tell me more. I need help, can you show me? The dated knowing it all way of leading is still present in so many spaces. So it still feels like you're risking being seen as weak or incompetent when you ask these questions instead of immediately offering solid answers. And when you move from a position of knowing to one of curiosity, you build trust both within yourself and in those around you. Now, not knowing all the answers has the ability to deepen team cohesion and cultivate creativity and innovation that never would have come from you trying to figure it out all on your own. But courage reminds you there's a different way to lead and it supports your ability to be vulnerable and say, I don't know. <laughs> but dang, I know so many leaders who feel such a responsibility to have everything figured out. So they push themselves to exhaustion while suffering silently for fear of being found out they don't have all the answers. Of course, being led by someone who asks more than tells isn't always easy. Followers are used to top-down leadership too. I see this in my kids. They ask me a question and I annoyingly answer them back with another question. Many of you who are or have labored through homework with young people may have a special appreciation for this tension. The other day, my son just threw up his arms, exasperated, and then proceeded to tell me I need to be a good parent and just tell him the answer to his math problem because it was hurting him trying to figure it out on his own. Now, cue restrained eye rolls. But really, there is something so cool struggling with him to get the best answer to find the problem. And I love seeing his face light up when he gets it or when we both are struggling to find the answer and we figure it out because of our collaborative effort. Now, on some days, sure, we carry a little extra weight for those in our charge. But when you feel like you need to have all the answers, it's often rooted in feeling responsible for everyone and everything. This kind of overfunctioning is a form of protection from being misunderstood or disappointing someone. All too familiar to so many people, right? I experienced leadership over the years where I was told what to do and then waited for leadership to approve my work or critique my work. Now, this approach was wrought with scarcity and unhealthy competition. So as a result, my brain still leaps to what I think is the answer, and it takes a lot of effort to not default into answering before asking more questions. Now, my guest today, she spent a year saying, I don't know, as a way to deepen her own recovery and capacity to lead herself and others well. Teresa's Engelhart is the founder of Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre, plant-based restaurants. Her heart is in serving others, and her life's lessons are the springboard of the stories she shares where her challenges have become opportunities. In 2014, she participated in TEDx at Occidental College, and she recently launched her podcast called Unreasonably Grateful. Her calling is to help people trust their inner guidance, and she is an author, speaker, wife, mother, and grandmother of 13. 
She lives and works on their amazing organic bee love farm with her husband, Matthew, in Vacaville, California. Listen for Tirsi's four life directives. They are so simple and also so powerful. Pay attention to some important lessons Tirsi's learned about leading her business and her team after a tough litigious betrayal from former staff. And notice what inspires Tirsi's to keep on trying, fall after painful fall. Now, please welcome Tirsi's Inglehart to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Tercy's, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rebecca. Great to be here. Oh, I have so much I want to cover with you today. I'd love to start a conversation by going back in time 10 years to 2011, which is weird to think it's like a decade ago <laughs> when you and your husband, you both made the really hard decision to close your Northern California Cafe Gratitude restaurants. And I'd love for you to walk us through this decision and 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 in detail how you were feeling at the time. Well, let's see. So we had started Cafe Gratitude in '04, and so we had several years under our belt, so to speak. And I was explaining to somebody yesterday. You know, we were really a unique community. You know, there was no plant-based food in the mainstream world. There was no almond milk. There was no cold processed coffee. And we kind of ushered all of those things in. And I don't know, but change always brings up a lot of emotions for people. And, you know, we had all the affirmations on the menu at that time. They were written on the wall because we had a counter service. So part of our community was we took care of each other. And we were really good at it. You know, we financially helped people emotionally, physically, and the community sort of fell into that pattern. However, we're also a business and a business comes under a lot of restrictions and guidelines and legal definitions. And one of the things that we did, and it's kind of a gray area, it's still true in the restaurant business, but we shared our tips with the back of the house because everyone was working equally as hard. It wasn't like the front of the house, which would be servers, bartenders, bussers, those people. It wasn't that those people worked any harder than the people who cooked or prepared the food and did the dishes. And and so we always had, every year we had the front of the house vote because they were the people by the very strict letter of the law, they were the people who could get paid from the tips and so we voted and they would always vote to share amongst everyone. And however, you know, however it goes, someone in a community feels like they don't get their fair share and they want more. Mm. And a lawyer gets a hold of that emotion or that feeling and attempts to build uh, cases promising large amounts of money or trying to create a class action suit. And that's sort of what hit our community. And we just weren't prepared to defend ourselves. We we didn't have a line item on our P&L for legal defense. We just never, we, you know, as naive as we were, we didn't think that would ever happen. And we th certainly thought if it did happen, we'd be able to resolve it at the community level. But anyway, we weren't. And, you know, the tough part for us was really, I think everyone has to go through betrayal as part of their process. And the tough part for us was, you know, these people that were involved in this were people that we had taken great care of and perhaps done more for than other people. But, you know, one of the dangers of what we do is, we create a familial environment. And, you know, when you, when you work in a familial environment, it brings up lots of your mother, father, family of origin stuff. And then your employers begin to be perceived as a maternal or paternal figures. And there's just a lot of healing that has the potential for happening, but it also has the potential for upset betrayal. And so anyway, that's when we bought the farm. So that's what began our LA expansion. So our sons went down to LA along with a handful of employees 
and they all lived in a house together and that's what birthed the LA community. And we moved to the farm and just kind of hunkered down and stayed out of the mainstream. And then of course we had to deal with selling buildings and terminating leases Mm. and selling equipment and, you know, all of the things to take it down. So how it felt at the time, I would say, you know, it felt dealing with what we experienced as betrayal, I think is always difficult. However, Mm -hmm. I learned one of the most important lessons that's I've kind of navigated the rest of my life with, which is historically how I and how other people that I know of resolve a betrayal is they convince themselves they don't care. So they're like, Mm -hmm. I don't even care. I don't even care anymore. And it's a way, it's kind of a backdoor, in my view, it's a backdoor of dealing with the tough emotions that are connected to betrayal. However, I did care. I loved these people. I cared about these people. And so the lesson I learned in this process was to keep caring and still let go. And that lesson's been, that was a pivotal, Mm. pivotal lesson for me. And I've had lots of conversations with people and some people think you can't do that, but I actually know you can do that. I still care about these people. And if I saw them today, I would still be grateful to see them. And, um, so yeah, so for me, it was, it was definitely a challenging time because we had so much invested in our community and we had to lay off a lot of people. I think we laid off like 230 some people and we kept open only the restaurants that could survive without the use of a central kitchen. And we owned the central kitchen building. So we also lived there. So we sold that, moved out. And so it really a whole community disbanded physically. But the truth is that community is still very connected and we're still very much in communication with one another. And there's still an amazing camaraderie and love and respect. And that time, those early days of Cafe Gratitude were pivotal in everyone's life that was involved in it. So I'm super grateful for my lesson. And, you know, as far as the impact and the cost of what you might call betrayal medicine, I think we did a good job navigating that. And yeah, grateful that LA came along at the same time and we had the opportunity to continue the legacy really that Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre are. You just said you're grateful for the lesson. Do you have clarity on what that lesson, what that lesson is? The one that I shared with you. Well, obviously there's the lesson prepare for, prepare for attack, right? There's, we have Mm. a legal defense fund that's part of our P&L, but that's not the lesson I'm proud of. That's just, that's just kind of some of the hardcore necessities and what people have to navigate in business today. But the lesson for me was to let go, but not quit caring. To let go, you know, and you have on, on your cafe gratitude website, your core values and two of them are love and gratitude. And I was curious about how you reconcile those values with betrayal. Is it love and gratitude that help you stay caring Am I connecting those dots? But how do you stay caring even amidst betrayal? Well, I think I think if we're all honest with ourselves, the reason it even feels like betrayal is because we care so much. Otherwise, yeah. it wouldn't feel like betrayal. It, For you sure. Know, it, and so I think betrayal uncovers how much we care. And the key is, can you hold on to that and then resolve whatever the issue is. So, you know, the sad part about how the legal system works is we were never allowed to talk to them and they were never allowed to talk to us. So, and then, you know, there's all these hush hush orders and stuff, which is such a shame, but I, I believe that they felt that they were doing the right thing, that somehow they felt that they had been inadequately compensated. They must've felt that way. And I suppose really the only sadness I have is that whoever we were being, they didn't think they could come directly to us and we could resolve it. So, you know, that's a great lesson for us to make sure that we 
maintain the type of relationship and connection that people recognize. Should anything ever come up between us that feels as if it needs some, um, you know, conversation and resolution that they know that we are people that they can have those conversations with. Yeah, that's a powerful takeaway. And my brain is just wandering to, they're just breaches or disconnects that happen. And it's still just, it feels like it comes out of nowhere sometimes. And I just am resonating with that feeling of, oh, we could have handled this differently. Yeah, this yeah. could have been different. Um, you mentioned adding a new light item to your PL for legal defense. How, are there any other things that this experience changed or impacted how you run and lead your businesses today? Well, you know, again, fortunately, unfortunately, I would say you know, because Matthew and I were the figureheads that kind of took that place of maternal paternal, you know, we, when, when the LA group happened, we stepped back more and we're less, we're way less present. Our kids run, run the day to day and our business partners. So I'd say there's less of a emotional transparency than there once was. And probably that's felt, you know, but there's also probably more efficiency and there are things that people do look to a business for. Um, I said, we really, we really merged the lines of, you know, business work and what most of us would consider, you know, family, which is like really loving and caring for people. And I think now we do a great job of that. I mean, one of the ways that that's demonstrated for me is if an employee has something traumatic happen in their family, they usually contact uh, the community of Cafe Gratitude first, either a manager or GM or administrator, which says a lot. You know, if something, ha- not, not too many people, if something traumatic happened in their life, would they contact their employer first for emotional mm-hmm. support or so? that says that that still exists within our community. It's just not that, you know, small kind of lovey-dovey feeling. There's more of a professionalism for sure. So there's plus and minuses to that. Fortunately, because I'm the elder in the community, I still get to be the lovey-dovey one. I I rarely have to write, I, I never write up someone or terminate someone. I get to just be the person that, is there to yeah support people and encourage people and bring out the best in them and i have the best job well and you you do and you do it well i've seen you in action and and i'm just thinking about something i say a lot to those i work with of how brave it is to commit to keep caring that it is it is a, a daring thing to just commit to keep caring uh, versus hardening up and protecting ourselves from the hurt. And like you said, saying, I don't care anymore, which is just a protector. It's just hiding the deep care. So I appreciate that. And it's such a dance when you are all in with your work and your life and what you believe um, and dealing with the complexity and messiness of humans emits that. I was really struck when I first heard you share that story and and how you rose from that. And I, I want to bring you back to a recent conversation you and I had chatting in your kitchen at the farm at Belo Farm last month and knowing some other aspects of your story I noted that the very things that brought you so much pain food and relationships are a vital vital part of your life and recovery today Um, you're in recovery from an eating disorder long-term abuse and you speak openly about your recovery in these things so I'd love for you to walk us through the intersection of your recovery and your work today well I think you know um so first of all, let me just give, share with you a definition, which I, I don't know that everybody would agree with me. Sure. It's my experience that people who deal with addiction, in my view, are usually really gifted people. And somewhere along the line, something happens or something shifts in a life. And I think people pick something to invest in that could be addictive or addictive behavior to avoid being responsible for the gift they carry. And so, Mm -hmm. so I think I have a different experience of 
the addict, so to speak. And obviously that's a, I'm using that term very generalized, but there's lots of versions of what addiction looks like in our culture. But my experience is those people are highly gifted and have yet perhaps to grow into being responsible for utilizing, wow. fulfilling and gifting that gift. So for me, I think my addiction started out of, so it was a combination of, I was a competitive athlete and the pressure and sometimes inappropriateness that happens in the training and raising of a, you know, high level athlete and then sexual abuse by a physician, which then, you know, I kept it a secret to protect him. And so all the pieces in play then were, you know, again, taking advantage of how much I care about people, which pushed me into what today could be classically called, you know, caretaking at, you know, when it costs you. And then I lived for 20 years in anorexia and bulimia. You know, anorexics, most of us know now will die unless they, you know, have some way of getting some food. And so bulimia is oftentimes combined with that. And so for me, that and that was 20 years, so 16 years old to 36, which is a big span of a young person's lifetime. It's young family, you know, relationship. And so I had a, a, a pretty, um, you know, explosive and traumatic 20 years as a young person. However, I was still always, which is just something that I've only reconciled in recovery, I was always much of the same person that I am. I cared about people deeply. I was empathetic. I just struggled around food and around control and all the things that might be associated with that. And how I survived pretty much was living in that world of food in order to get food, just like addicts live in the world of drugs in order to get their drug or alcoholics live in the world of alcohol in order to get their drug of choice. So for me, I, you know, I lived and worked around food and I would often do really great. Just like some people don't drink all day and binge at night, I would do all great all day. And, and then I'd end up binging at night. And so when I went into recovery, I was 36 and I happened to be married to a military man and we were based right back at the location where the abuse had all happened. And so I think that, I mean, now we know more about that. So I think that being in the same environment at a different time kind of brought up all of the past wounds that I had covered up with, you know, starving or eating or activity or business or success or whatever I'd covered them up with, which, you know, the beauty of that is I was further along in life. I had some more maturity. It gave me the opportunity to re-enter that world and heal them in new ways. And for me, I kind of chose an alternative healing path. And, you know, I was really guided by an internal voice. You know, for me, that voice is Jesus, but people could, you know, call or identify it something else that was true to them. But for me, that was Jesus. And so I just was given these four over the course of like four or five years, I was given these four directives. And the first one was tell the truth. And for someone who's hmm. kept a secret for 20 years or lied for 20 years, telling the truth is really scary. And yet, you know, it was the most, most important thing I ever did because the first time First time I told someone the truth, you know, I was freer, however that works. And, you know, I just kept taking one step and then I just really practiced being truthful in all areas of my life. And, you know, it wasn't like the people around me liked it because my life had been constructed on the lies that I'd told. And so my life did begin to unravel in certain areas, but it also began to grow in others. And, um, you know, I began to heal. And the second directive was, you know, face what you're afraid of, face your fears. So, you know, that's so easy to say. And so many people have said it, you know, this was, uh, gosh, what year was this? 30, let's see, 50, the 80s, this was in, and, you know, face your fears. Well, it sounds easy unless you're the one that's afraid of the thing that you're facing and then it's not. And so, but what I discovered is what has me lie 
or withhold is always the fear. It has me not say because of the fear. And so when you face your fears, it actually creates more freedom to be truthful. And the more truth you tell, the easier it is to face your fears. So I spent years doing just that. And then the third one was stay in the moment because I noticed that whatever I was afraid of, I was usually projecting into some future event or unraveling or, and, or some past regret. So just dealing with what was right in front of me right now. And then the last one was open up to love, which was loving myself, loving others, letting others love me. And I still live my life by those four. And when I'm off center, I can usually go back and somewhere, somewhere I'm either not being completely forthcoming um, or truthful somewhere. I'm, you know, looking in too far into the future, looking back. And I just, if I go back to those four basic guidelines, my life works better. So I just started living my life that way. And, you know, I went through lots of, lots of different expressions and jobs and relationships. And um, yeah, and then when Matthew and I got together, I was actually working for a transformational organization in the city. I love, there's nothing I love more than seeing someone get freedom in an area of their life where they haven't been free before. There's nothing more exciting than that. That's just like the most beautiful thing in the world. And so anyway, we had decided to start, well, we invented a board game. So the, you know, the first guidance we got, we were like, okay, we're just going to trust our inner guidance. And the first thing we got was invent a board game. So we invented this board game, took us a year called the abounding river. And it's a transformational board game. That's about keeping your attention on six qualities we chose. So those were like, you know, creation, responsibility, love, acceptance, self-worth, gratitude, generosity, and abundance. And then we were like, well, what are we going to do with all these games? I think we had, I don't know, 5,000 games printed. Or <laughs> what are we, we going to do with these? And we kind of had our life savings. So we were like, all right, well, let's open up a little coffee shop because I know how to bake. He likes coffee. That's a great idea. People will come in and play a game. You know, what could go wrong with that idea? And I found out about living foods, raw foods. And I was super interested in that. Like, wow, this is an amazing. And, you know, I was always working with people and healing. And so we, I said, let's try the raw food. And we started eating raw food, felt great, started preparing it for other people. And, and then one day a restaurant became available at the bottom of the hill where we lived in the city. And we ended up getting it and we opened it as a raw food cafe. So Cafe Gratitude originally was raw food and, you know, raw food gaming parlor is what we call it. But for me, it wasn't until the day like the first day we opened up and I stepped back and I saw the original Cafe Gratitude logo sign and I realized, oh, this is like full circle of my healing is the very thing that nearly killed me. It, I've transformed into something that's actually healing and now I'm serving it to others. You know, we did things that were really symbolic of turning dining out and celebration and gathering together with people into a healing, healthy opportunity as opposed to what can often be destructive if not handled well. And I've had that thought many times before that, you know, in a heroine's journey, you, you sometimes have to walk back into the mouth of the dragon and this time not get burned. And I think that was for me, the full fruition of that is that I'd actually learned how to work with what the interesting thing about living foods is it's really part of creation. It's like work with creation in its natural form and have it be medicine for people. So yeah. And now we farm and, you know, it's not a raw foods, but it's still the food we grow, the working very close with creation and providing great food for people in an environment that I believe 
frees people from places that they've previously been stuck. Thank you for sharing that. You know, just hearing the journey, the evolution of often our greatest pain is where our greatest healing is. And I, I wrote these down as you're talking, tell the truth, face your fears and stay in the moment and open up to love. I, I, I'm, yes. And, and it really, if telling the truth is, it, it starts with being honest with ourselves, right? I mean, we yeah. can't speak truth if we don't acknowledge it. And that takes a lot of inner courage and inner work. And then I love the, the how you talked about how telling the truth grounds us to be able to face our fears. Mm-hmm. And so once we release what isn't true or how we're protecting ourselves with something that isn't true, we have more courage. And then we can be more present with that discomfort. So staying in the moments possible. And then I almost picture this opening of arms so then we can receive love. It's a powerful powerful wisdom, I suspect is, I have no doubt that you've shared this with people that you've impacted. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited more people will be able to hear this. And we started this interview talking about the betrayal you experienced at Cafe Gratitude. But the betrayal was a part of your story way before. And, and there's just this, this sense I get, the more I get to know you of starting over and you know, you're, you've got a birthday coming up. You're, you're, am I correct that you're turning 71 next month? Yep. Yep. Is that right? Hazel, I said, I thought 70 and Hazel corrected. No, it's 71. And Hazel, oh, I trust Hazel. Hazel. She does. <laughs> and, and, and you are really one of the most vital and intentional people I've ever met. And as starting over, you've done it a lot in your life. And you, you really just are not impacted by culture's definition of or value around age or failure and your work ethic. I mean, I saw you when my family was on the farm. You were up every morning at eight, milking the cows, in the kitchen, cleaning or cooking. I mean, you, there was there was always motion, but it didn't have this frenetic energy that I see of a lot of folks. There was still like a rest and peace. And there's something about this sense of, I don't know, starting over. So that just has me think about your, your kind of a PhD in starting over. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering what your relationship with starting over is and how that's changed over the years for you. You know, that's interesting. I think, I don't know that anyone's ever named that for me, but yeah, I don't give up. <laughs> and so you don't. for people who don't give up, I would say starting over is just a part of the fabric of that being. Um, yeah, I, I embrace new challenges. And I mean, I had somebody last night in a guidance group say you should do TikTok and I'm thinking I'm like 71. I don't even know what TikTok is. <laughs> and yet, you know, I'm looking it up today. How does it work? What does it do? I think I I love learning. I love a good challenge. I remember when my kids after enough failed relationships, my kids were like, "Mom, why why do you keep trying? Why are you And I'm like, well, what else would I do? You know, if I'm going to be a student of love, which I consider myself, then every opportunity to love is a lesson. And how do you learn those lessons unless you participate and apply and you learn and you see what, oh, well, that that didn't work. That wasn't it, you know? And so I think I'm just one of those people that, you know, wants to play until it's over. I, I want to play full out. I don't want to be observing. I want to be participating. And I love, I love growing and learning new things. And um, yeah, I don't give up. I would say the starting over is attached to, I have a tremendous amount of resiliency and you know my grandfather my grandfather was a boot maker saddle maker in arizona he worked with navajo indians and when he died he gave me a elk's tooth and um an elk the animal medicine of elk is stamina Mm. it's that it's that fortitude that not giving upness and i think just probably always had that. Um, yeah, I don't quit. I just, I'm not a quitter. <laughs> and so I yeah. think sometimes if you're not a quitter and things don't work out, you have to start over. 
I, I appreciate that. And, and and just thinking back to your roots, even as a competitive athlete, you know, I played sports a lot. I work a lot with competitive and elite athletes. And there is some of that tenacity of just that gets in your bones about the world that I, it, it can sometimes drive people to exhaustion, but it is such a resource in times of struggle and falls or failures and starting over. That's like, let's do this. <laughs> what do we need to do? What's the plan? Let's go. And I think the curiosity to always learn, I, I resonate with that too. It, it, I, yeah, I, I just always to learn and grow. So I'm excited to see what you do with TikTok, Tiercy. That will be fun. <laughs> she said, let's see, the two things, you know, some young, technologically skilled and talented person said you should do TikTok and you should do video content on your a podcast. Yep. So, you know, I have this podcast, Unreasonably Grateful, and my big thing has been, I want to be able to share it with more people, but, you know, I don't know. It's like, how do you do that? You know, the whole marketing thing and marketing yourself. But anyhow, she said, you should do video content. So I was like, okay, I, I don't even know what, how these things work. I was just looking at your screen, like, how did you do this? You got like you and me up there. And I'm fascinated by what I don't know. That's another thing. Ooh. So Rebecca, I spent a year of my life in pretty early recovery saying, I don't know to every single question that was asked. So it's a great exercise because I think we can so, I can and we can so easily get caught in our knowness, our knowingness. And when you say, I don't know, there's oh. an opening. And so I spent a whole year just saying, my kids ask me a million questions. I, I have three children and um, they ask me questions and I, I don't know, I don't know. Let's figure that out. Let's look and see, what do you think? You know, I just, because it's so easy sometimes as a parent of young kids to have answers for every question. When my family and I were on your farm last month, we, we got to hear story after story of those that worked on your farm or volunteered of how you and your husband and Matthew impacted the lives of those around you or those that they do. I mean, we were captivated by these stories. So I, I want you to define, share how you define generosity and mm. really talk about what fuels your generosity. Mm. So, so my definition of generosity is being in the flow. So mm. consider that there is an unceasing flow of everything running in, through, and around us all the time, everywhere. But we only experience it to the degree that we're out of the way. So all of us are like sieves, so to speak. We, we have this grid or this grate in front of us. And we only experience this unceasing flow based on how much of it can get through our personal sieve or blocks, whatever the blocks are to the flow. And, you know, those blocks can be, I'm not worthy, I'm afraid, there's not enough. There's all kinds of blocks to the flow. Mm -hmm. But when you can identify what those blocks are, then you can keep them in place or not. You can consciously leave mm -hmm. them there. But there are some that are probably, in most of us, unconsciously there. We don't know that they're there, but yet they're blocking that flow. So generosity is stepping into the flow. It's, it's giving and receiving freely. And it's not deciding who's worthy or deciding, it's not any of that. It's simply letting the unceasing flow flow through you. And when you don't, seeing if you can identify what's blocking that. And then you can choose to leave it in place or not. Because some of those blocks serve a purpose, particularly for... Oh, heck yeah. You know, abused. You know, there are just lots of blocks that are probably very needed. protective. Yeah, they're protective. Yep. They're needed, but they're not needed forever. They may be needed for a time. And there's a time when you can identify it and go, oh, I don't actually need that anymore. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it's not about who's worthy, who's not worthy, whose love is. It's just 
freely giving and also freely receiving is an expression of abundance. So it's the free exchange of, you know, energy, goods and services and love and kindness. And, and if we're here, if we're here to learn to love more, which I actually believe that we are, then it's powerful to notice when you don't want to give because hmm. that's helping you see something about yourself and where perhaps you're also restricting your ability to receive. Because usually it's a, where you can't give, you can't receive either. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, I really love the connection of it's generosity isn't just giving. It ha there has to be the reciprocity of it. And and I like that it's not a forced thing. Like sometimes I see generosity used like to define worthiness. Like I am good because I give of my time, of my resources, and therefore I'm enough. That's 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 over functioning. That's hustling. That's manipulation. Um, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can it can really feel like that too. Yeah. But we can't do generosity if we can't receive generosity. We can't give it if we can't receive it. And it's so hard. People get mad when I when I bring that up. And they're like, no, I don't have to. I don't need anything from anybody. <laughs> mm. I really appreciate that. So even just thinking of leadership then, why do you think it's important for leaders to practice this kind of generosity more? And why do we think why do you think we need more leaders doing this? Well, Again, I don't know. Okay, so I don't know that we need it. I just know that if a leader, we for years did leadership retreats, and a leader as I define it is somebody who when they walk into a room, more love is present. Ooh. So a leader is someone who awakens love's presence in others. And I don't think you can do that without being generous. Mm -hmm. It really starts starts with ourselves too. I, I know I can't offer that if I'm not practicing that to myself. It's yeah. ground zero. Yeah. I mean, that just shifts in some ways who a leader is. Like, what else would we be leading people to or through if it wasn't the awakening of more love. I don't know. You know, I, I can imagine people listening to this and going, oh man, more love. No, we need, we need results. We need change. We need impact. More love. That feels a little woo-woo or foo-foo. And I'm saying this just to be transparent because I've said, said those things and felt those things like, come on, people, what's up with this woo and love stuff? But the love piece is it is if we're not loving towards ourselves and don't have a heart that's open to love and can tolerate that and that that reciprocity of generosity, then we see maybe to me, at least I don't know what you think about this, but that's where I see can toxic leadership can develop or burnout develops. Please. That whole conversation is an invitation to look and see where that block is coming from is an invitation mm -hmm. to look and see where's the, what's the source of that block what's the source of that skepticism yeah what's the I skeptic agree. why is the skeptic in you coming up around you know what is that right why do we call that woo woo that's a that's a great mm -hmm. that's a great journey mm -hmm. to go on and that'll lead somewhere that'll that'll show you something about yourself because most of us have experienced what it is like to truly be loved and none of us would deny the power of that experience and no. then most of us have experienced some dysfunctional expression of something that was called love, but we now can see and know that wasn't love. 
that was something else. And so we have to be careful that we don't collapse or diminish the value or the meaning of love's real power by some misrepresentation of what it was. No, I, I do. I love that the burdens and the protectors that can hijack our generosity, you know, yeah. those getting curious about them. Because I mean, for me, the reality is, is that kind of love with abandon felt dangerous because of the heartbreaks I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And part of what really rekindled my capacity to love was becoming a parent. I mean, I guess it started having pets first. There was something about animals when I was younger that were so healing. But then there's just something about having my kids and getting to know them that just helped some of those, you know, those you call them blocks, I call them protectors, relax a bit. So I could sit with that vulnerability of just that love. Yeah. So I I appreciate that, that the love and generosity really are so deeply connected connected us. I appreciate you sharing your definition too. Cause I, I talk about leadership as anyone who walks into a room can impact that room. How do you want to impact that room? Mm-hmm. And I really, I value you saying, you know, the leaders that you aspire to be the leader that you aspire to be and want others to be is to one that, that impacts that room with love. Mm-hmm. And we feel that we feel when you're in the presence of someone who can hold that, that's healing. Yeah. When I'm around somebody who holds that, I feel that in my soul, in my bones, and I'm changed. And so yeah. I think that's a really powerful word. Thank you for that. Yeah. Great. You're welcome. Um, just talking a little bit about Beloved Farm. I'm fascinated by what you were doing there. You touched a little bit about, especially during the the betrayal you experienced over a decade ago. I don't know if that you know, fueled your decision to buy, if that was in the works, but talk a little bit about what fueled not only your decision to buy a farm, but a regenerative farm. And I'd love for you to share too, how Beloved fits into all your businesses too. Well, you know, we bought land because we wanted at the time, I think we had maybe, I don't know, six, maybe not, maybe five grandchildren, four. We have 13 grandchildren Mm -hmm. now. And we (laughs) wanted our grandchildren to be able to run free. So Matthew and I Mm. couldn't imagine raising children that weren't able to just run freely outdoors because our childhood was like that. But we could see in our children that that luxury, those days were probably gone where parents have to always be able to see their kids and know where they are and they don't have that freedom. And so we wanted to create that environment. So And we also wanted to grow our own food and know our water source. So we started originally thinking, well, we'll grow food for the restaurants. And so we actually bought the land. There was nothing on it. We camped on this land for eight years. So we had, I mean, when we started here, we had a hose. That was our sink and a bucket. That was our toilet, right? We did, we had nothing. That's hardcore, (laughs) Terseys. That's hardcore. And we lived here for eight years in like a 13 foot yurt. And we just had like an outdoor bathtub and, a funky outdoor kitchen. It wasn't long ago on Instagram. I posted the before and afters of the farm because I was like, I saw those. Most people think this is how we've lived, but this isn't how we've lived. This is all new to us as well. And so we just, we're really good at doing whatever it takes to get something up and going. So we just took the next step and we, we did grow vegetables and fruits for our restaurants and we even trucked them all to LA. And then we realized it's a nightmare. (laughs) We're like in the trucking business. And so, um, and we couldn't compete with some of the prices of the local farms there. We're not a big operation. There's like five of us. And so uh, we have 21 acres and we just slowly developed it over time as we could afford to. And we actually built the pool and the sauna way before the house because we needed to be able to get cool and get warm and dry. And that was when we used to have rain in California, (laughs) the old days (laughs) when it used to rain in the winter. And so, um, you know, now we have a beautiful, you know, really retreat center. We built it to share it with our employees. So we wanted to have a place where our employees could come and we could wait on them and they could take a break, get out of city life. And um, so that's, 
that's what we did. Um, and we did all our corporate trainings and retreats here. And it was more of just kind of a hobby along with growing a lot of food until um, when COVID hit and we had to close a lot of our restaurants and once again, lay off a lot of people. We developed the farm then really as overnight stays for families and communities. And we host weddings and corporate events and yoga retreats. We do a lot of yoga retreats. It's a great, it's a great fit for us. And then we also still grow fruits and vegetables for our San Francisco location and some local restaurants. And, you know, we make wine and olive oil. So we're kind of multifaceted in our interests, which makes it interesting for people. But mostly we developed ourselves as a community resource for the local community with when COVID hit and people couldn't get some things and we could provide those. I remember you telling me how you uh, your how your farm stand expanded during COVID. You're like, Rebecca, we are at a dead end, and we were so busy, <laughs> seven days a week. People were choosing to come out here. I mean, and your farm stands on. You have popsicles and sometimes you have <laughs> bread and pizzas and fruits and vegetables and all. You cool cool swag. Definitely check check it out. You can purchase stuff online. Um, but there was a source. I mean, because that's what we were doing. We were trying to figure out like what are destinations we can do that feel safe but still connect us to the outside so that really did that really fuel what's going on with the farm and your businesses today what you what you discovered during covid well i think you know one we discovered people are willing to drive two miles down a country road to get fresh eggs and that people wanted to be able to be outdoors and we allowed people to walk the 21 acres and we started creating added value items in order to provide something. And we really became a resource for families, families with young kids in particular. And my husband and I love hospitality. We love serving people. I think the thing that surprises people is that what we're sharing is actually our home. Like some people will ask, where do you guys live? And we're like, here, we're just like one of the rooms, you know? And most people are super surprised. Like you just have people in your house, like every day. And I go, mostly. <laughs> but see, that's part of the generosity is you look and you see, what do you have to share? And you share what you have. It's not like I don't have anything to share. The question is, what do I have that I could share? And we all have, Ooh. we all have things to share. And what we had to share during COVID was the farm. So that's how it really kind of blew up. And then we started doing events and festivals and letting people into what does it take to really run a farm. And the regenerative part, Rebecca, is just, you know, there's a movie called Kiss the Ground that our son, you know, was the a big part in getting made. And you know, there's there's our relationship with ourselves and there's our relationship with each other. And then ours there's our relationship with this planet that we're so blessed to, to mm -hmm. live on. And most of us know we have to take care of this house and then we have to take care of our house and we can check in and help the neighbors with their house. But then we need to take care of the house that we all live on. And regeneration is about giving more than you take is really the easiest way. It regenerates itself. You support it in getting stronger. Just like raising children is a regenerative process. If you, you grow them to be stronger, <laughs> most kids will exceed their parents because you've given and poured into them and they've also drawn from other people and other resources. So regeneration is about caring for the soil. It's about making sure that the land itself is kept healthy so that what lives and grows on it can also live with a base level of health and, and regenerate itself. So yeah, it's about not taking more than not taking more so that the land itself is reduced, but in fact, caring for the land in a way that it regenerates itself and gets stronger and healthier. What's the hardest part of running a regenerative farm? I don't think it's hard. I think it's a lifestyle, right? So mm. I think it's just, you're never done. You're never done. <laughs> so you're not going to check off that. your to-do list. You know, you're never done. And you have to be at peace with both life and death because on a farm, 
the life cycle is not obscured. You're in the face of that life cycle every day and you're a part of it. And so you have to be at peace with both, you know, the, the joy of birth, but also the process of death because life and death go on every single day on the farm. There's never a day that we're not yeah. present to both. So I think the most difficult part is resolving our own relationships, what we do and what we don't have power over, and then working with creation and nature in a cooperative way, as opposed to trying to get things to do what you want them to do when you want them to do them. That, that won't work so well. <laughs> I can't, I can't relate to that at all. No, I totally can too much. You know, I, I'm thinking about that and, and what we talked about the beginning about caring, because while we were at the farm, you lost some animals mm-hmm. to wildlife. And yeah, I think they lost, you lost some chickens when we were there and they got left out or escaped or something. And I watched you all, I could see the sadness wash through you. You didn't bypass it but you didn't swim in the deep end of it. It was, we care and we're going to commit to caring for the land and all that live on it. And that was a hard loss. And what can we do to learn from this loss to care for those living here better? And I just, I I watched that because I have such a tender place in my heart when animals get hurt. And I felt my system try to lock up and say, I could never do this. I could never do this. But I, again, watched how you and we, we all shared lunches together when everyone who worked the farm and stays at the farm can eat together and saw how you processed that. And that left a big impact. And another reminder, just the commitment to care is brave work. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I always ask myself, but who do I want to be known as? Mm. And, I want to be known as someone who cared, you know, and so it's worth the risk. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you are leaving that legacy. You've made a big impact on our family. And I know on so many of those who know you and Matthew and everyone that you lead and love. So, Wells, thank you so much for your time today and for joining me on this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate you. And it was such an honor and a privilege to get to know and be with your family. So you're always welcome here. We will be back. We will be back for sure. Thank you. Uh Thank you. Leading from a posture of having all the answers is dated and dangerous. We are in a time where we're surrounded by so much creativity and innovation and we miss out on important learnings and lessons when we hide behind the protective know-it-all wall. Can you imagine following Teresi's lead and spending a whole year saying, I don't know, to every single question? Think about that for a moment. Like, I know I am, and I'm really pondering what that would look like and feel like in action. As much as this posture of curiosity and openness is attractive, It feels immensely vulnerable, especially in high stakes conversations at home and in my work. So let me ask you, what fears come up around taking a posture of not knowing all the answers that you need to face? How can you cultivate asking more questions instead of pressuring yourself to have all the answers? Where in your life do you need to open up to love? I loved Teresi's four life directives. Tell the truth, face your fears, stay in the moment, and open up to love. These practices support the capacity to lead without feeling like you have to have all the answers. And they are also powerful practices of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigated staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries, especially when you don't have all the answers. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. 
Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.